Hi, my name is Javilla and I'm a trauma-informed somatic practitioner and therapist in training. Yoga teacher, movement artist and a co-founder of Less Stress Holistic Mental Wellbeing Solutions that offer sessions, consultancy, workshops and toolbox for businesses, individuals and organizations. I'm also a host of Less Stress Podcasts where we meet with a variety of professionals from trauma, somatic psychology, science, spiritual, and activism fields to find, sense, feel, and talk about our interconnectedness as a way to find, create, and integrate new ways of personal and collective living. In this episode, we contemplated how psychology and spirituality can interconnect and support each other on our healing path. However, In our society, there is still a high chance that these two will operate separately. Yes, in therapy cabinets now more than often than ever, you get offered mindfulness and breathing add-ons. But so rarely, a psychotherapist, somatic therapist or other holistic practitioners work closely together for a betterment of mental health. As a humanity, we feel safer in boxes and extremes. If we get to know one or two things well, we rarely will question them. Yet questioning is a part of this material human experience, making us truly curious, hence alive. In this episode with Gunnar, we separated spirituality and therapy, only so to bring them closer together, as the purpose of these two are to enliven our souls, minds and bodies and experiences life as aware and as awake as possible. So let's dive into it. Gunnar Germansson is a psychologist, therapist and philosopher, pursuing a PhD in Greco-Roman and Christian roots of the modern Western worldview. He is passionate about the birthing of the primordially ancient in a world that is new. Hello, it's really nice to have you both here today. So I'm sitting here in this wonderful studio with Gunnar and Gabriela. So hello. Hi there. Uh, Nice to have you here. So as usually, I'll start with a very simple, not even a question, I say. So if you're willing to share your story, whatever is related with a background of psychology and the spirituality where you're coming from. So we would be happy to hear that first. So, yeah, so I want to just say that it was great to be here. Great to, to be invited uh, to share. And um, I guess the first thing to say, you know, in, in, in our society, we're concerned about, you know, professional titles and education and all of that so so I'm you know I trained as a, as a clinical psychologist at the University of Oslo and I worked for a number of years as as a therapist both both with groups and uh, individuals and in parallel to my clinical training I did um training uh, as a yoga meditation teacher and also studied various uh, eastern wisdom traditions you know like tibetan buddhism and something called the diamond approach 
which is a more contemporary uh, spiritual uh, path. And so all along this, you know, this very, you know, empirical scientific uh, training that I received in psychology, I had this kind of, this, you could say, more alternative or holistic training uh, in, in more uh, traditional wisdom approaches from, you know, some of them thousands of years old. And so for me, I, I found that I, I really, really, like my soul uh, kind of craved some kind of form of deeper uh, nourishment of wisdom um, that I didn't feel like I really received uh, in this more empirical scientific training in psychology. So I don't know, that's a little bit about, about me and my background. I just want to draw from that, um, I guess... Were there any underlying um, intentions why you did psychology and then when you went deeper into the spiritual, um, I guess, exploration or just, let's say, coming back to spirituality? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 th- I think from a very early age, I, I remember I, I read uh, a book called uh, Sophie's World, which was very famous in Norway in the 90s. And really introduced, you know, a lot of young people to to the history of Western philosophy. And so, philosophy, you could say, was my first love in a certain sense. And I, I, I really felt that there was um, some kind of um, genuine source of of wisdom and guidance in in the Western tradition. So that was where I started out. And I think that the interest in psychology grew out of that. Grew out of this um, curiosity about, you know, human perception and cognition and how we relate to the world and other people and you know how we um, sort of uh, figure out you know what is uh, a good life and what is meaningful and those kinds of questions so for me they were kind of they kind of grew out of this interest in philosophy and then and then I went went to study psychology to uh, as a as a maybe a more kind of applied philosophy in a certain sense, like a bit closer to you know the embodied uh, practical everyday life of of individuals, and um, but yeah, this this um, this curiosity about uh, Eastern uh, contemplative traditions, wisdom traditions. I think I think it kind of grew a little bit from the same source. Um, at, at some point, there was a little bit of a kind of a disillusionment with Western philosophy because I studied it a little bit in the university, and it's become kind of a, a bit of a dry sort of theoretical intellectual enterprise. It's not really an embodied philosophy anymore, as I think it was in the in the time of Socrates and Plato and so forth. So I think that was what the Eastern traditions kind of contributed. That said, okay, we we can do philosophy here. We can do you know, kind of. Uh, systematic um, study of the principles of reality, but you have to ground it in a meditative practice. You know, you can't just just sit in your chair. You have to kind of uh, use some sort of practices to uh, hone your attention, to sharpen your focus, to expand your awareness, to be able to uh, discern some of these more deeper principles of life that often gets you know, kind of confused and jumbled up in the, you know, everyday 
life, you know, with all of the distractions and the, yeah, the, the activities and the, and the hurry of, of, of daily life. And I think naturally for me comes the thought of the spirituality often, I guess, as philosophy has a tendency to um, also stay in theory, right? So it's something that, let's say, it's something that happens um, close to us, somewhere close to us as a body, let's say, but not really inside of us. So there's sometimes it can be this conflict of... Um, detachment right so i want to detach from um, this human experience because otherwise i cannot experience the spirituality and so this part can we explore that a little bit and how do you see this um from your own perspective well i think that's exactly was my experience and, and 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 still is to some extent it's definitely a work in progress for me uh of of how to you know really embody to come into a body to incarnate on this planet um there's yeah there's a tremendous uh impulse i think in 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 maybe all humans and certainly many humans to you know to want to get away in a certain sense from you know because life is is painful it's uh very challenging uh at times it can be dark um there's you know there's you know as buddha pointed out there's you know uh old age sickness and death and impermanence and so there is there is this kind of tendency to 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 want to um maybe escape a little bit or reach some um uh, sense of um uh something um stable uh in in a in a theory or an ideology or or a kind of philosophy um to kind of avoid a little bit you know just just being with the realities of being in a flesh and body and blood uh, uh life and so yeah so i definitely felt that and 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 uh you know after having studied philosophy i was so up in my head you know i was like the body was almost you know just like a kind of um transportation vehicle for my brain you know it was the brain that was the the center and so i had to really you know do a lot of you know therapy and body work and yoga and various healing modalities to really come back to my body in a certain sense and really discover that, hey, here's a source of wisdom, here's a source of profound guidance for my life. And I can begin, begin to sense and look and listen as I walk through life. And then I kind of pick up those subtle cues that tell me, you know, here's a good direction. That's not that's not so, such a good direction. You should go more over here. And it doesn't come from you know kind of a theory. It's more just like sensing you know what the pattern of life is kind of inviting me into. So yeah, so definitely that that's that's been a journey for me. Uh, interesting phrase that you know usually it's the mind who thinks that I am the body or we are the body. 
but not the body itself thinks that it is the body. The body just is, right? <laughs> With all of its systems and um, different systems coming together into the vastness of the being. So just to draw back a bit uh, to therapy, sometimes can be exactly the same thing. So, right, we hear about the spiritual bypassing, but we also hear about the mental bypassing. And I know that on this podcast, we have probably two sides of the listeners that, you know, some of them are more into the mental stuff and science and explanations, and some of them might be more into the spiritual stuff. But I know that there are people who connect these two as well. So, um, yeah. What do you think about the mental bypassing when sometimes um, all we need to know are the scientific research and statistics and proof and that we cannot prove certain experiences even if we are experiencing them inside and usually they are called very subjective but we know that they are true. <laughs> so just any drawings from, from that and what's your take? Well, it's in, in some sense, it's, it's, it's a very big question because it opens up um, into you know how we understand psychology, basically as as a, as a Western discipline, as a Western field. And um, I think one way to approach this um, is um, you know the using the term uh, secularization. So it's maybe a little bit new term or difficult term, but it's basically this process we've had over the last couple of hundred years in the Western world, predominantly, of um, reality becoming kind of disenchanted. Like reality becomes more sort of a rational, material um, expanse that we live inside, but that doesn't have any more a sense of a, a sacred dimension or a sense of a you know, a kind of a mystery or, you know, like the archetypal symbolic structures that humanity have had, you know, embodied in, in myths and fairy tales and, and all, of, all of this material um, that have given meaning and cohesion to, to people's lives. Um, we don't have that anymore. And so what we have instead is science, modern science, which is sort of, is in some sense supposed to tell us know what is good and what we should do and you know uh, how to kind of get by uh, in the, in the world and we have this amazing technology that you know we can sit here and you know talk to each other across you know great distances in time and space so there's a, there's there's been wonderful developments with this you know scientific technological materialist uh, kind of a paradigm you could say that we've had in the western world you know since you know, some would put the start date in the uh, 17th century with Galileo Galilei and the, uh, you know, revolution of modern science. And others would say it comes, you know, gradually over the course of the 18th and the 19th centuries. But however you, you place that uh, time period where, you know, we get this modern secular kind of uh, rational rationalist view of reality... Um, there seems to be something that's left out. Uh, you know, I think many people are noticing that 
you know, because there is this um, a, a deep longing and yearning in many places for uh, meaning and value and even spirituality. Um, and there, there, there's this realization that the modern world doesn't really, even though it's incredibly uh, proficient at uh, solving problems and giving us amazing tools to, you know, make our lives easier and more efficient and so forth, it doesn't really kind of speak to that um, deepest part in us that, you know, like really wonders about what what is this life on this earth about fundamentally? You know, why are we here? What is it about? So I'm kind of asking, I'm answering your question a little bit sort of roundabout way, uh, but uh, I think that this is a way to 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 understand also the the discipline of psychology because psychology actually grew out, you know, in the late 19th century out of 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 philosophy and spirituality in many in many respects and you you have for instance one of the founding fathers of modern psychology william james who wrote the principles of psychology in 1890 in 1902 he wrote the book varieties of religious experience and it was all about studying from a psychological perspective that is to say studying you know the inner emotional mental uh, phenomenological dynamics of various kinds of spiritual experience. And so there was, in the beginning, definitely an engagement with spirituality. You find it in Sigmund Freud's work as well. Definitely, he was super interested in paranormal phenomena. And then, of course, a close collaborator of, of Freud was Jung and Carl Jung. And there you have a, a completely seamless integration of spirituality and psychology. But then you come into the first few decades of the 20th century and you see that uh, with the rise of behaviorism, which basically says uh, human psychology is just behavior. It's just the understanding and the control and the manipulation of human behavior. And that's the end of the matter. Like our inner life, the inner life of the soul is like not relevant to the science because we can't measure it. We can't objectify it into third-person variables. So with the rise of, of, of behaviorism, and then after that later with, with what's called cognitivism and the metaphor of, of, of the human mind as a kind of computer, um, that whole sort of spiritual dimension that was there originally in psychology got, got um, occluded. And that you could say is again an expression of this secularization of the modern world where... You know the realm of of the spirit, of um, the soul, of the enchanted, of magic, gets kind of uh, occluded. This is the time when the psychology and I guess the science behind it in general, they're definitely noticing the need uh, to the people that do use the psychology and do attend, um, uh, you know, psychotherapy. Um, the need that there is some kind of um, limitation to, to, to that, that, uh, you know, in therapy you come to a certain point where it can be, you can come to a certain point where, uh, you know, something is missing because it's, of course, it's great to understand how your mind works and what are your thinking patterns, but I guess, yes, it has some limitations. Um, 
So I wonder why there's so much resistance. I know that it happens. Um, many psychologists do include somatic practices, meditation, mindfulness, more and more. But it's still quite considered as an add-on or, uh, you know, um, good thing, <laughs> but not necessarily the one that might be, uh, you know, truly helping the person. Um, what do you think, what, what can be done to start that discussion uh, or to have the more open discussion in, in a psychological field uh, to open up more to the holistic practices and approaches? Mm. Wow. Maybe from your own personal perspective? Yeah, it's, it's, it's again a very good question and, and challenging one. Um, you know, just to, just, just to begin to take some initial attempts at, at, at answering it, I think, I think that the, the, the conversation is already, you know, happening in many ways. Uh, I think one way, very tentative way that it's happening, but certainly it's a, it's a start is, is the, um, uh, the great sort of dialogue that has been begun to happen in the last few decades between uh, Western empirical psychology and Eastern contemplative practices, such as mindfulness and yoga. There's definitely a dialogue happening there, and there's plenty of published uh, journal articles and books, you know, um, exploring uh, the transformative power of meditation, for instance. That is... Uh, which is, you know, which comes from spiritual traditions, definitely. But the challenge there is that those practices are sort of yanked out of their indigenous original context and exported into, or sort of culturally appropriated in a certain sense, um, into a sort of um, slightly more, um, you know, um, rationalistic, uh, clinical focus on how do we get this person, you know, from these kind of symptoms of depression or anxiety, for instance, into remission from those symptoms and so that they can resume their, their, their uh, function in, in society. So it can become a little bit sort of instrumentalized in that way. And so the original spiritual sort of context for those practices gets lost. So that's a challenge. And you have critical books being published, such as Mac Mindfulness, that challenges this uh, cultural appropriation of Eastern uh, contemplative practices. So, but, but, but I think, you know, it's a way that things are seeping into the culture, you could say, you know, gently. There, there are certain cracks where, where the lights get through there. Um, another answer, another approach to dealing with your question uh, I think, um, so, okay, so two more, two more approaches. One, one would be looking at, um, instead of like importing something from uh, the Far East or even from, you know, like South American shamanism or something like that, which also can be very helpful and useful. There's something about like dealing with the indigenous Western European or kind of European um, tradition itself. Because soul and spirit 
is there too, obviously. Uh, but it's been, it's been. Um, I mean, the main thing there is, of course, that the Christian tradition that's been, you know, uh, their domain, you know, the domain of priests and bishops and all of that, you know, and the Inquisition even. And and so there's there's a whole, you could say, karmic legacy there, of a certain um, a certain power structure that wanted to have a monopoly on the knowledge of the soul, the psychology. What it, what does it mean literally? Psyche logia, the logic of the soul. And so. And so, of course, with the advent of modern science, there was this emancipation. There was a freeing from the yoke, the hegemony of this power structure that, that you know, was based in, in, in the church. And so there was a cutting, you could say, a, a, probably a necessary cutting off a little bit of that, of that baggage. But I think, again, that there may be an example of the baby being thrown out with the bathwater that... that you know that that actually there was a genuine in you know in the monastic communities among the mystics there was a deep knowledge about the soul you know there was psychology there that wasn't called psychology that's a modern term but there was a deep knowledge about you know the dynamics of the soul and you know what kind of challenges you face emotionally mentally spiritually physically and how you work with them and so forth so I think there, there, is, there, is, there is work to be done, you know, internally to the Western tradition as well. As well. Yeah. So let me just get in here with, and I want to continue on what you just said about spirituality and psychology and that they merge together from the same kind of wording in the beginning or meaning in the beginning, and then it gets dissolved in our understanding of Western, and then we try to grab something from the East as if we don't have our own. But if we look back where we are, we are in Norway, and Sami, local Sami indigenous population are still having probably much more of that wisdom locked in within their community and could share it uh, with us more of it if we allow the stage of it or like the space for it or of course with every indigenous community there is certain set of trauma which we see western mind trying to kind of take over in the way saying this is how things should be done now this is how you have to think and we recognize those patterns regardless where we are, but just being here in Norway at this point. I would like to maybe ask about the correlation between practicing spirituality in any form, whichever for people is acceptable, and the psychology being, or in general science, being more interested in researching and accepting collaboration between those two when the spiritual practices are also very active in the country or within the communities. Because when we look in the U.S. society, even there is 
a lot of a lot of um, spiritual churches congregations at the same time the science and people find their ways to actually do much more open research than for example here and would you find that this can be correlation that people are just more open to discover something they are seeing more and being immersed more in whereas in Norway spiritual practices even if it's practiced it would be much more your personal business and you don't necessarily go at work you know in your community and talk about it or as an open subject because you can talk about what car you bought or what other you know um different material things happened or not happened to you but about spiritual practice it's pretty personal so that would be one thing and another one just to clear a bit that uh, spirituality as a subject when we think about it in the western society we look at it probably historically speaking from the point of religion whereas uh, i would like to bring in here thomas hubel's spirituality definition whereas i am understanding this world and it has like vertical and horizontal axis so when we talk about horizontally that i am the consciousness and i have the expanding understanding of who i am and vertically would go to where i come from and where do i go so it can be very detached from any religion but just to have this open space for contemplating spirituality in this way as part of your own human research and uh, awareness and the growth of human consciousness as i am personally and individually as well as society wonderful um yeah i really like that definition of thomas hubel's um uh what, what i'm i'm not sure what exactly to answer uh but what comes up for me when when you're when you're speaking is um is again going back to this question of secularization and to see if we can understand that a little bit deeper um oftentimes what i what i find because i also did a training in group analysis which is a group therapy uh, form of psychoanalytic group therapy and and what what we understood there is there there is this kind of multi level um similarities across different scales so you can you can find certain dynamics on the level of an individual that gets replicated at the level of a group that gets replicated at the level of a community and at even at the level of, of a nation state and so forth as a, as a culture because there are different you know what Ken Wilber call, calls holons different sort of holistic structures that that tend to follow a similar pattern and so um what the situation we have in an individual person 
at least if we follow the general outlines of of the Freudian approach. But we don't have to accept all of what Freud said. But but generally, after a hundred years, I think we can fairly certainly say that his central insight is pretty accurate, which is to say that the way that we are shaped as an individual today, the way our personality structure is shaped, has come about in large measure because of our history, because of our interactions with our mother, because of our interactions with our father, siblings, the culture we grew up in, the schools we went to, and so forth. We humans, we are impressionable beings. We take on various experiences and they become part of our nature. They become second nature, as we say. You know, whether you see it as you know, layers of an onion or the babushka dolls and so forth, right? And so the central therapeutic insight of Freud is that we, if you do a little bit of sort of archaeological digging in your own psyche, you can actually liberate some of those problematic structures in that onion. And that there is a kind of insight that can happen that then makes you feel more uh, free and spontaneous and natural uh, today, less bound by the past, basically. And so, but we can actually look at the same thing at the, on the level of culture, on the level of a collective. That, and and and, and, and in particular uh, around this question of secularization, what if the question becomes then, what if? Um, in a certain sense, the, uh, the disappearance of the spiritual dimension is only apparent. It's just gone into hiding. It's still here. It's still with us. It's just covered over by a certain layer of our cultural onion. And so there's, there, and, 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 and of course, what Freud also said that whatever you suppress, whatever you're suppressing your unconscious will leak out somewhere. You know, and we can probably know the symptoms of that. You know, just look at the amazing success of you know the whole literature or genre of of fantasy, and you know, like the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and this enchanted magical world. There's a profound longing for that in many many beings, um, even though from the cultural sphere of intersubjective consensus reality. Those elements are filtered out by the sheer power of the the field of the collective, you know that 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 suggests that you know those things are just illusory fantasy somewhere else. And so, yeah, so that's that's the answer that that comes up for, for me is like, what if what if there's there's there, there's actually a kind of cultural archaeological work that needs to be happening to, to set free what has never been actually totally absent, but it's just gone into hiding. And it reminds me of one beautiful um, uh, passage in, in, in a very, very famous speech, uh, which was a commencement speech from 2005, that um, a guy called um, David Foster Wallace, he was, he was an American, uh, very famous American novelist in the 1990s and 2000s. And he, and he had this commencement speech at the universe, uh, university in the, in the United States in 2005, which is called This is Water. I think it has several million views on, on YouTube. It's, it's really great, really inspirational. 
And in this um, speech, at some point he says, everybody worships. Everybody worships. It's just, what do you worship, right? Do you worship money? Do you worship uh, material security? Do you worship your looks, your body, your beauty? And he says that this, this is actually an argument for choosing some kind of transcendent reality to worship. And he's very open. He says, it could be the Wiccan mother goddess. It could be Yahweh. It could be the four noble truths. It could be some kind of ethical uh, you know, principle, something like that. But if, if you choose one of these other things that are very, very limited, that are very you know, material, materialistic, it will kind of eventually eat you up alive. Because if you worship those things, they were they they are never they will never be stable for you. You will lose your money at some point, or there there's the threat of losing it. Your 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 looks, your your body, your beauty, all of that is also, you know, not not um, not uh, something that's you know ultimately uh, stable. So so anyway, so so that was that was an interesting perspective that. Maybe even the most secular materialists are still religious in a certain sense. They are still worshiping, but in their own way. And certainly a lot of people are worshiping science and technology. I mean, look at, you know, the newest release of the iPhone or whatever it is. It's like, wow, this magical, amazing thing. It's going to catapult me into a new, wonderful life. Well... Not so sure. And I think that would be great if these material things would do that, right? So that, that they would elevate us to the higher realms. But usually it's not the case. And um, it really struck me when you said about that archaeological digging. And I think it definitely relates to the uh, both individual and collective trauma as, you know, something that we suppress uh, for many, many years and many centuries. And then um, these symptoms, you know, come up as wars, as uh, aggression, as division, as separation. Um, and in a way, we can deny that for some time, but as we can see, these times are a bit different and uh, we can kind of have to turn our, uh, back to ourselves and really ask the questions if, um, you know, what, how we are and what we do are, you know, how we want for the world to be in the future. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think I just want to draw or just kind of blend uh, two questions into one and come back to the Know, to the main point of um, what do you think are the crucial things uh, both that come from therapy and spirituality in the healing journey? Well, let's say if we don't, uh, you know, separate any of these two. Or... Exactly, exactly. So, so for me, spirituality and psychology are, are not separate. It's definitely when you when you understand psychology as the logos of the soul or the logic of the soul, the logic of the psyche. Um, they're, they're, they're one. They're one, um, definitely. 
Um, so I would draw a, a few a few elements, one or two or three elements. Um, I think one super important element that I've seen again and again in, in my work is the um, the need to be seen, acknowledged, and valued as somebody unique and valuable, just for what you are, your being, right? And and to really to really reach that experience of feeling seen and valued and loved even just for what I am so that I can really take that in and come to come to feel love for myself uh, not love for myself as a kind of image like a grandiose image it's usually kind of like you know I need to be seen as somebody brilliant or somebody creative or somebody successful or something like that but more um, it's more like where where um, my knowing of myself is just inextricable from just being myself and knowing and being that has infused infused with a sense of love and care and a sense of value yeah, because there's so tremendous amount of um, self-hatred, let's just put it bluntly, in our society, in our world, in our culture. You know, the superego that Freud talked about, the inner critic, the sense that you know you're constantly comparing yourself, um, judging yourself, um, correcting yourself, you know, you should be more like this whatever Instagram influencer or you should, you know, do this and this and this. Um, uh, yeah, that this can sort of really uh, build up this inner atmosphere of self-hatred. So to come to this place of, of a deep sense of, uh, you know, forgiveness and loving, kind, compassionate, knowing of one's essence, one's being. And again, when you say, use the words essence, being, those are kind of spiritual words. It's not like a self-image that is constructed in the mind or something like that, which is your usual vocabulary of cognitive psychology. But it's, what if, what if it's a real essence here? It's a real being. It's something that's not constructed. It's not even a thought. It's not even an emotion. It's deeper than emotion. It's not, it's not a physical sensation either. It's just an isness. And that's what I am. And it feels good. And I'm seen in that. And I'm acknowledged in that. And so that, that, that's why I think therapy can be helpful because there's another human being that can help to, uh, to validate that and, and, and acknowledge that. Um, when you know those more superficial layers of try to be somebody, you know, try to be what my mother wanted me to be, or try to be what my father tried to be, but just letting you know, kind of piercing through all of those like more superficial layers into that simple is isness of who and what I am. You're touching here on a very important point, and the question which naturally arises for me 
is to hold that space and being seen in therapeutical or any actually sense this way that you, as you come, as you are, are accepted and just valued for life as you are. It's so beautiful now listening to you and saying this, it's almost as a permission for all of us who are here in the room and listening to just accept and open to that almost invitation. But the question comes, when you are a therapist, when you are a psychotherapist, psychologist, can you imagine that creating the space like this, open, non-judgmental, regardless who is sitting in front of you, requires enormous amount of self-work through spiritual realms as well, because otherwise you cannot connect to that isness yourself. And once you are not embodied in that personally, you, of course, as a human being, bring many things into the room and the mood and the other things which are passing by. But if there is no this experiential connection with the isness yourself, how can we create that space for others? Very good uh, point. Very good point. Uh, it, re- it reminds me of, of uh, something that one of my Tibetan Buddhist teachers said. He, 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 taught, he taught us the, the practice of Tonglen in Tibetan Buddhism, which is a practice that is called, uh, translated as giving and receiving. And so you're kind of, in that practice, you're visualizing, you're kind of taking in the suffering and the, and the, the pain and the problems of human beings around you. You know, you can visualize some, you know, friends or family that are struggling, that are suffering, and you sort of visualize that you're taking that on and taking it into your heart. And then with, with the in-breath, you're taking it in. And with the out-breath, you're, you're sending out love and compassion and kindness, okay? So this is a beautiful practice. It's a profound practice. Um, but I remember he said that um, you should really uh, start that practice with visualizing in the center of your heart this kind of crystal uh, vajra, this crystal sort of uh, pure expression of this isness, according to the the Buddhist tradition. Um, And as you're breathing in this suffering and the pain from the people around you, as this comes in and it touches your heart and it touches this crystal vajra in the center of your heart, it's like it zaps it. It's like, it's like this deeper spiritual nature that has the capacity to really uh, absorb and transmute anything. It's, in some sense, it's not your personal uh, individual uh, heart that has to carry all this baggage, right? And from that place... You, you can you can then send out love in, in a more sustainable way. And I think, you know, for me, that's been a, a helpful teaching, but I have to be really honest. I, I found it super challenging, super difficult what you're saying, because I also struggle with what you could call compassion fatigue. You know, I haven't been able to always transmute that energy, um, you know, in that, in that good way. I felt that, you know, things have been difficult to 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 work with uh, some, you know, some of the relational dynamics in, in a therapeutic um, uh, relationship. 
some of those emotional energies that that gets activated in, in, um, in a therapeutic relationship. And of course, what what in psychology we call counter-transference, right? That uh, some of the patterns of the, the, the client you're working with trigger things in yourself that are not worked through. That's, you know, <laughs> so suddenly it's like, you know, it's my father sitting on the other side there. And I remember how critical he used to be. And I feel like I can't do anything right for this other person. And I keep like walking on eggshells and what's going on? And then, oh, I'm seeing, I'm, st- I'm caught in this counter-transference. My own history is being activated. So I, I agree with you. There's a lot of uh, need for the uh, personal inner work of, of any therapist in order to be a good uh, servant of their clients. Last uh, episode, we talked about brave leadership, and I'm bringing it in here as vulnerability being very important part of the healing process and for leadership as well, since therapist in the room is perceived one as a leading conversation and holding the space. What happens, what magic happens when First of all, acknowledgement within the therapist arises that, oh, what you just said, I'm reliving my own patterns here and I'm healing together with you and taking it, maybe acknowledging to the client, sometimes not depending on circumstances and situation, but the moment you align with that, really you are coming to the truth of the moment and present moment. And it's immediately much easier to hold that difficult situation because alignment happened between what is happening and not trying to dissociate, not trying to run away from the situation. Because, of course, you would probably, part of you and the judgmental self would say, like, it shouldn't be happening. This is the person's time. It's not my time. But relationality and our psychics and our nervous systems are wired to actually collaborate. So we're all creating space together. And it's no magic in here that one affects the other. It's just a pure life happening and taking care of life. So actually inviting therapists, mental health professionals, and in general, everyone who is trying to work for well-being to not be afraid to really, really acknowledge that moment of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It's actually when we start aligning in the present moment and then going from there, it's much, much easier to, to replenish our source of life. It's beautifully, beautifully put, and I just want to underline what you, what part of what you said there is this, this uh, emphasis on on the present moment, on presence, you know, a presence as the source of life, as you said, right? And when you really allow yourself to land into presence, whether you're on your own or with another human being, um, yeah, that's. That's ex- I, I find that, that that's, that's the source of life. That's the source of energy, vitality, and, and also the source of compassionate action. 
That's where you really have that attunement to you know what may be needed in a certain situation. Um, and I think that that brings us back, you know, to this question we started with around you know coming from the mind or the head or you know theory, which is by definition a product of the past, right? It's a kind of cobweb, you know, it's a, it's a kind of um, upstairs. There's a lot of cobwebs, a lot of old concepts. Life is always in the present. It's always here. And so, yeah, I think that's, the, the, that's ultimately the healer. That's the healing agent, the healing elixir in a certain sense, when we can really come into presence together. And when you say presence, and drawing back to the Western society versus Eastern society, for me, it comes to say that we go from doing, as therapy here in Western world is doing, and uh, our lives are measured by how much things we've done. So from that doing, 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 into being. And when I say being, everything relaxes because there is no competition there. It's again back to the present moment. So when we in therapeutical setting, can reach that being and in our everyday life, because therapy is one hour a week, and our life is every day 24-7. So the moment we catch ourselves allowing to be as we are, without other person maybe witnessing, then again we're coming back to the present moment, and that charter guy who is very... How did you call that? Superego, who is really judgmental, has no power there or less power there. Yeah, I definitely agree that we, but I think in a way we constantly um, naturally balance between the doing and the being. Um, or sometimes, well, usually the disbalance is on the doing side, but... In general, we are both. We are both the active and then the passive, and then it interchanges um, most of the time. So that uh, the natural active one is another element which is called becoming. So that is a flow of life which is active, but the doing it's more like forceful. Being is more natural and yeah, still. And so becoming is an active. It's interesting what I've heard recently that the force is coming from the head and the strength is coming from the belly. So that kind of, you know, I'm coming with full body to, to do something rather than just the head. Um, so it's interesting. <laughs> right. Uh, we're slowly coming to the end. Um, and I just want to offer a moment of coming back into the present, actually. <laughs> and just feel yourselves how you are in this moment, in this space. Um, just whatever is needed to notice the, how's your body in the chair and how's your breathing. Now take a deeper in-breath and out-breath. Maybe even feel your feet 
onto the ground. And just notice all ten uh, toes on your feet. How are they in this moment? Just allowing that energy and the information um, to settle into this present moment. And my last question would be, uh, is usually how we end the conversation, is um, quite simple and but at the same time, complex. Um, whatever that is, what is less stress for you? I think that my sense is that stress is connected to time and connected to the future or our ideas of the future. And I think there's a whole cultural process there uh, in the in 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 the West, that is, there's probably a, a very interesting story to tell about Christianity being maybe the most future obsessed religion on the earth, and and all of that stuff we're going to do, you know, in order to maybe prove ourselves to God so that we don't, you know, fall into hell on the other side, which. A few centuries back, people really believed that you know you could go to hell if you weren't good and even productive. And um, so there's probably something there, uh, I would say, to really look closely at the whole at how we relate to time and the future and what that means for us. I think there's something there to uncover about freeing freeing up time freeing up time, liberate time, both on an individual level and, and maybe also gradually more collectively. Because I think there's a kind of temporal grid that is contributing to uh, this you know, stress epidemic that we have. And if you could give one simple tool that you maybe personally use to our listeners that can can may help you actually free up the time for you <laughs> what that would be mm-hmm. well uh, I'm going to be pretty boring maybe but I would say you know a daily meditation practice is quite useful you know like to it's like setting the right frequency at the start of the day like to to wait with you know smartphone and messages and emails and all of that just to have a little buffer zone at the start of the day and and some kind of meditative practice or you know maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be sitting still like other there are other ways of maybe moving or something that is just you in your own space um, to set the proper uh, frequency of of peace and presence for the rest of the day. Thank you. That was really wonderful and uh, expansive conversation. And I really enjoyed that. So thank you 
for contributing <laughs> for all of us. Um, yeah, I still have many popping up questions, but I have to kind of <laughs> contain myself. So thank you so much for this. Mm. It was great to be here with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for coming to the end of our conversation. I truly hope you take something from it and bring it with you. I just want to remind that it's truly important if you have a chance and get to support our podcast via Patreon and you can donate any amount you like. It's a less stress account on Patreon. Also, uh, you can rate our podcast on Spotify, which makes it truly useful for us and participates in our growing process. So, in other news, 2024, it's a new year for less stress and slowly, I think, but steadily, we enter with some amazing plans uh, and some amazing news. And one of them, which I think I can already talk about is a, is a somatic and yoga retreat, a physical retreat that will happen at the beginning of May with a somatic teacher and therapist and educator Jaina Kondo and with us, Less Stress, in Sweden. And we're truly excited about this. It's going to be full of amazing, enlivening tools, um, connecting somatic therapy, yoga, breath work, uh, meditation, discipline of authentic movement, and many, many more exciting things, including amazing nature around us. So the full program very, very soon, and I'll make sure to update you on this. And you can check all the newest information in relation to the events and other things on... Um, on our new website, the less double s stress double s dot com. The less stress dot com. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today and see you on the other side. This is Jabila, and you're listening to Less Stress Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>